Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What is the bat squatch? Can flying dinosaurs still be seen in America's skies? If these monsters are real, where do they come from and where do they go? Hey there, I am uh, Ben, and uh, this is the 568th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. And those high-flying questions and peculiar squatches came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. And uh, this is our first broadcast of 2015, and we bring you one of America's foremost authors on a uh, very fascinating subject of cryptozoology. And she is well-versed in many, 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 many areas of it, and we welcome your calls this evening. Numbers are 800-449-1240, that's from anywhere in uh, the U.S. or Canada, or 401-766-1240, that is locally. Also, we will be monitoring email. You can email your uh, questions to uh, paul at behindtheparanormal.com and all that good stuff. Author, investigator, and artist Linda Godfrey has written 16 books on strange creatures, phenomena, and people. She's a frequent guest on national TV and radio shows, and this is her second appearance on our show. Her latest book, published in August, is American Monsters, A History of Monster Lore, Legends, and Sightings in America. Other books include Real Wolfmen, True Encounters in Modern America, as well as Weird Wisconsin and Weird Michigan in the Barnes & Noble Weird U.S. series, and Strange Wisconsin, Strange Strange Michigan, The Poison Widow, The Beast of Bray Road, and Hunting the American Werewolf, among uh, the titles. Linda and her family live in Wisconsin. I don't know if it's safe out there with all these... Anyway. It, it doesn't sound safe at all. But Linda Godfrey, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. We hope that you're safe. Hello. Well, I'm feeling pretty safe this evening talking to you guys. So. <laughs> oh, very good. And Happy New Year, too. Oh, yes, indeed. Happy New Year. I forgot that it was a new year. Alrighty, so most people get their cryptozoology from TV shows. So how inaccurately do the uh, media portray these monster sightings compared with historical records? How inaccurately... I would say reliably inaccurately. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least they're reliable about it. In, uh, yeah. in uh, what ways? Well, what they want is a sensational story, and um, sometimes you know the facts just aren't quite sensational enough for them. The other thing is that they sometimes do is um, blur the actual uh, quoted characteristics about a creature to make it sound like something else. I've seen shows that will actually pull in totally unrelated clips from other shows about different topics and make them seem as if they're part of it. You know, there's always a lot of uh, creative uh, cutting and pasting. So really, if you're only getting your cryptozoology from TV, you're getting a very skewed picture. You know, and I'm not even mentioning the ones where the so-called investigators are just paid actors going out and looking silly. Well, we know just what you're talking about. Oh, yes. Uh, but it's entertaining to watch, though, because it just looks oh, so... Sure. It's so goofy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you, just, you just can't take it seriously. So, what are these creatures, and why do we refer to them as monsters? Well, you know, monster is almost a generic term these days. It's, it's applied to so many things. But when you say monsters, people generally think of something that's not right, something that's too big, something that is going to frighten you, will look like it might eat you, um, has generally fangs, fearsome features, and is just the kind of thing that makes you go, that shouldn't be, you know, it's not right. And so that really encompasses a very broad range of things, all the way from very ancient 
legendary creatures to things that go about by air, land, and sea, you know, in, in many different ways. So, um, you know, it's, it, it's a very broad topic. And when I wrote this book, what I wanted to do was sort of bring to people's attention the fact that there is a huge, wide variety of really unusual-looking animals or semi-animals. It's hard to say for sure what they are, that sober, credible people many of whom don't want their names used because they don't want their neighbors and friends to make fun of them. Um, or they don't want to be, you know, become um, I- infamous in their own neighborhoods or anything like that. Mm. They're seeing these creatures. And um, what I hear over and over again from people who contact me, and I've been at this for going on 23 years now, is that they're just really happy to find someone who will listen to them you know, it's almost like a confessional in some way, and not tell them they're crazy, not make fun of them. Um, that and and I tell people truthfully, there's very few things you can tell me that is going to sound any weirder than something I've probably already heard already. <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably a good point. I'm pretty sure that people have said that that to us. Uh, mm. Yeah, it's like, oh, you're going to think I'm crazy. It's like, no, we've, we've mm-hmm. heard some pretty crazy stuff. But is this um. In in your research, what's your standard for an encounter that's uh, real or one that isn't real, or or how do you how do you tell the difference between uh, a, a hoax and what is really going on? Well, you know there there are different types of uh, of encounters that I I vet, and I do really try and vet a lot about each one that comes to me. Some are really easy, you know. There are a few that are just like, hey man. I saw a 10-foot-tall werewolf in the cemetery last night. You know, that one, bing, goes in the circular file. Um, that, you know, any, any of them that have a mocking tone, you know, they're, they're out the door. And then there are the vague ones where people will say, write me and say, well, I saw something brown and furry between the trees. And I'm like, did you get a look at its face or, you know, its ears? Well, no, all I saw was some brown fur between the trees. That could be anything. You know, so that may be a very sincere and credible report, but there's just not enough to it, you know, and I regretfully have to tell people, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I just can't really do anything with that. Um, and then there are other types. There's, there's the super drama type of report where I really have to wonder when people are giving me these crazy and minute details and things I've never heard before, like um, one was a report about, some guy who said he was in a cemetery, and he just happened to have a silver lance with him, and he just happened to strike the creature in the eye, and green ooze flowed out, you know, and I'm, thank you very much. <laughs> it was a lovely story, but no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it's really amazing, but, and, and those, I don't mean to give an impression that there are a lot of those kinds of reports, because they're in a very small minority. Mm. You know, probably... Um, 90% or more of the stories that I get, I can tell, are from sincere, credible people. Some have better sightings still than others. You know, their daylight sightings are usually better um, for seeing details than the nighttime ones. Um, some um, are closer. Some are right out in the field with it, while others are just zooming by in their car, or it's zooming past them in, while they're in their car. You know, so there are lots of variable factors. But... Really, most of them, um, especially in terms of what I call the unknown upright canines, which I think is more accurate than the term werewolf, Mm -hmm. um, especially in in terms of that one, 
um, I would say that, again, probably 90 to 95% of the re- reports of those creatures I've got don't portray anything that couldn't be uh, just slightly adapted, maybe subspecies version of a natural large wolf or wolf-dog hybrid. Um, you know, most of them, they display the nat- their eyes glow in the headlights, but it's the natural yellow or yellow-green eye shine of a normal canine. Um, they're walking and running on their hind legs, but that is not a supernatural or impossible thing to do. It just doesn't usually happen because they're not built to do that. They have to be motivated or trained um, to run around like that. So that's that's the main characteristic. But otherwise, they're not part human. It's not like people are saying, I saw, you know, uh, Jack Nicholson sprouting fur and changing into a werewolf. <laughs> it's, it's just not that way. They are running on... Their toe pads are digitigrade as canines normally do. They're they're not flat-footed like people or Bigfoot or even bears. They have pointed ears on top of their head. They have long muzzles, fangs. Um, they don't have real shoulders, although sometimes their upper forelimbs are more developed than normal, probably because they're hauling around deer carcasses with their newly freed forelimbs, um, things like that. And they do strike people as a little uncanny. They People feel that they're, they seem more intelligent than normal animals that you might write into and that they're just as interested in checking out the people as the people are interested in trying to figure out what they are. So do you tell the... Um, this is this, this is just what, what I've, I've gathered from what you've said so far. So it seems as if... Um you base what's what's um, what's true on the consistency of reports. Am I am I overstepping, or is, is that moderately accurate? I'm sorry. The first part of what you, I, I didn't quite catch the first thing you said about the consistency and accuracy. Oh oh um um do you do you determine accuracy of reports via like the consistency between different people oh. reporting the same thing? Like if twenty people say they saw saw the same thing but in different areas, would that make it would that make it more plausible? That's that's what I'm saying. Um, well, yes yes and no. I mean, overall consistency is something I take into consideration. But just because somebody reports something anomalous that another person didn't doesn't mean that I'll discount it. You know, if they seem yeah. credible, um, you know, it may be that there's a plausible explanation. Maybe um, the one they saw looked a really weird color, but then you find out that it was, you know, in the shadow of a, an outdoor lit Christmas tree or something. You know, sometimes yeah, there's an explanation yeah. for that. Um, and other times... Um, you know, I like to think, well, if I'm taking all these other things they're saying on faith, I'm not going to eliminate this one just because there's something a little different about it. Maybe that's a new clue. Maybe it's something that no one else has noticed. Hmm. So how often do you get these reports, like on, on average, or, well, reports in general, really? Yeah, I probably average one to three a week. That's um, impressive, actually. After 22, it, it is. It, just, it absolutely astounds me. I had one come in today from Fresno, California. Um, yeah, it, it just some. There are weeks when I get lots more than that. You know, once in a while I have a dry run time where I I don't receive uh, much for a day or two, but then you know something else always comes in. Is there something so, that that's reported more than anything else, like some sort of phenomena that that people report most often to you? Well. I tend to get more upright wolf-like creature reports mm. than, than the other things, but um, I still get an amazing amount of reports of Bigfoot and all kinds of other uh, large birds, um, the bat squatch, um, you name it. 
you know, Mothman-type things, water creatures. And that happened right from the get-go, you know, right from the start. People began sending me not just the the uh, wolf-like creatures, but also the Bigfoot and, and the other things. And I thought, hmm, you know, these things seem just as interesting. And I felt that all of them, you know, when I began in this, I, I was a journalist, I was a reporter for a newspaper. I didn't know what to think, but two thoughts were uppermost on my mind. One was that if there really were... Um, some kind of strange, sort of undocumented predatory animals prowling around the backyards and the woods and the fields of the United States that people had a right to know about them and know that this was something they should watch out for and maybe uh, be, be aware of. The other thing was that it, I thought, well, you know, what if there is some weird explanation that these aren't real, that something is... Uh, totally unknown and bizarre is making all these people insist that they saw these things. Maybe it's some kind of folklore in the making. Maybe this is how legends come about. And that, you know, any um, sociologist or folklore um, recorder would probably be very happy to have that kind of first-hand information as to see mm. how legends are born. So I felt right away that it at least was something I should keep track of and, and um you know, just just record. No, that's that's I I think that's extremely intelligent of you. A very good move uh, from one who knows little to nothing about cryptozoology. Um, so, but we're going to take it back just a little bit because your book focuses uh, has has some fascinating looks at um, North American monsters that predate permanent settlement by Europeans. Can you tell us about some of those, like Quetzalcoatl and all those things? Yeah, um, Quetzalcoatl is. The uh, Mesoamerican god. He's uh, he he goes by different names, but you can find him in you know several of the the, the Aztec culture, um, Mayan cultures, different ones uh, with slight variations. But he is generally uh, one of the main gods in their pantheon. Um, sometimes the main one. Um, it's thought of as a feathered serpent, so that would be a flying serpentine being. Um, I think that there's a lot of resemblance to dragons, which you find um, as the earliest gods in, say, China. Um, You find these in the old Sumerian um, civilizations. They go way, way back, and they kind of uh, prefigure also um, other things, that, such as the, the Thunderbird, which is one of the major... Um, creatures that you find in the, the North American tribes, which is a very um, highly placed spirit creature that has feathers and is uh, huge and is able to battle with other creatures and that does good things for the people. Um, you know, sometimes they're connected with civilization. But, um, yeah, they sort of prefigure dragons and giant birds and all these other uh, amazing things that go through the sky. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I, I never actually picked up that connection between them and dragons. Though. Fascinating. I did. I, I didn't get to the, ch- the section on dragons just yet, but I am looking forward to it. Okay. Sure. Uh, I, not to let this pass, I couldn't help but notice, Linda, you mentioned a, a case from Fresno, or at least a report from Fresno, California. They came in today. Can you tell us what that was about? Um, it was a, a report of a wolf man where a man was with uh, several people, and 
they were outdoors someplace, and um, two of them at least, I'm thinking maybe three of them, saw, and this was a really weird one. This, this is, here's a case where there's an anomaly. This creature ran out from behind some trees and ran in front of the group in full view of them. They all had a really good look at it. They said that it had very wolf-like uh, head and paws. It was covered with fur, um, a little larger than an average human. Um, but from below the waist, it was bare. It was almost furless. And he said it. Uh, the legs reminded them of, of human legs somewhat. But... Um, and that, that could be a case of mange, although usually mange doesn't occur evenly. It's just on one half of the body, usually a spotty sort of thing. But um, they were all extremely shaken up. And he said one of his friends that saw it just sort of, he said he just sort of went dead in the eyes, which I thought was a really chilling remark to make. Hmm. Um, you know, it took him a while. It was like he um, went somewhere and his eyes went dead and it took him a minute to come back. And um, unfortunately, I have that on my email uh, account, but my computer has been crashing all day long. And in fact, right now I'm running um, a major scan of it. I'm sure I got a virus or something. Yeah. But um, so I can't exactly look at it and get you the, the complete details. But that's, no, no, that's, I re- that's what I remember of it. As okay. Best I can. All right. One thing that bothers me, Linda, I don't know about Ben, but. Um, I'm not an anatomist. I'm not. I'm not a veterinary uh, and kind of veterinary mm-hmm. um, expert at all. But uh, I know that that cats and dogs, uh, which would include, of course, the canine world of wolves and all this sort of thing, um, really are not meant to stand up. And bet, yeah. th- you brought this up. Uh, are constructed, you know, to do that at all? It's it's for a few seconds or a minute at the most, even if they're trained or motivated, as you say. Um, but the reports, many of them seem to involve uh, very large, uh, upright creatures. And as a matter of fact, one, one of the incidents in your book that is from New England here uh, is, is an upright deer in Maine. Mm-hmm. And th- that's just not meant to. So, I mean, how do you explain that? I mean, unless you're prepared to say that you got, you know, as in folklore, human beings turning into these things or shape shifting. Yeah, and I'm not prepared to say that. I, I say in all my books. I do not believe in traditional werewolves. I don't believe that humans physically change their every corpuscle and atom of their body and their DNA and their their teeth grow long and, you know, they spout fur and their muscles contort and they elongate their spines and their, um, you know, knee muscles shrink up. You know, it's just way too um, impossible. I, I, sure. I don't mm-hmm. believe that. However... Um, you'd be surprised at how well a lot of four-footed mammals can get around on their hind legs when they're motivated. There's a beautiful, um, you know, bears are one example. A bear is a good example of a creature that will stand up and look at you. It'll take a couple steps. Um, it can be trained a little bit to do, you know, what they call the dancing bear act. Sure, yeah. We're famous in Russia and stuff. But generally, if I've seen bears in the wild plenty of times. My dad is from northern Wisconsin. And... Um, when they want to get somewhere, they get down on all fours and they can really book it. They can go at great speeds that way. But there's a beautiful YouTube video of a female bear with a couple of cubs that um, had an injured forelimb 
and began walking upright sort of out of necessity. And it's quite erect. It, it runs beautifully. Hmm. Um, there are also YouTube videos on, um, there's one called the Merengue, M-E-R-E-N-G-U-E, Dancing Dog. If you Google that, you can find it on YouTube, uh, where a man has trained this little dog to just beautifully dance around into this complicated, all on its hind legs. Um, there's another one, um, a little push that just died. It was on Geraldo Rivera years ago called Faith the Wonder Dog that was born without its forelimbs and was trained to run alongside its master when they went for walks. Um, so they can do this. The question is, why would they do this in the wild? Um, it does give a few possible advantages. For instance, you know, it's much easier. If you can carry your, your uh, prey away in your forelimbs up off the ground, um, you're much less likely to have somebody else follow you and grab onto it while it's dragging on the ground, you know, and tear it away from you. Um, if something is living in an environment where it's like, for instance, think of the old uh, prairies along, you know, through the Midwest where there were these tall prairie grasses. And if you were bound to the ground, you wouldn't be able to see things coming at you, whether prey or um, something to watch out for or whatever. But if you were able to walk along upright, you could see more. So, and, and again, this is mere speculation on my part. I'm not a biologist myself. I've written at pretty good length on this in, in my books. But um, the interesting thing is that the one variation, I mean, the, these creatures that people describe almost always sound entirely canine, but they'll say, you know, it did have claws it, on, on paws, not hands, but paws seem slightly elongated and that makes a lot of sense because um, that would be a sensible adaptation and one that would be rewarded um, in terms of, of uh, breeding for if, if you were wanting to stand upright it'd be a lot easier if you had a longer paw or if you were going to hold things in your forelimb paws um, it would be a lot easier if they were a little bit bigger so you can see how natural selection might select for something like that. Yeah, you can. Uh, I'm thinking of, uh, yeah, I might, I might be a little more skeptical. We're not for the fact that Ben and I uh, were in San Diego at SeaWorld a few years ago while we were on, on uh, doing a program out there. And uh, I'll never forget the sight of an otter running out on the stage and handing the guy a can of Pepsi. You remember that? I remember that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. fine. If I hadn't seen it my own eyes, I wouldn't have believed so. so I, exactly. uh, it certainly gives credibility to what you're saying about adaptability. But it leads to another question, Linda, and that's, uh, you know, if, if we have a, an evolutionary, if, if we have a, a mutation of this kind that, that's in the uh, an, uh, wild animal population, how come they aren't, you know, dancing down the street, and how come they aren't more reported more readily? I mean, is, is it, is it or more frequently? Is it, uh, what's going on with that? You mean why? Why aren't we seeing more open um, views of these of the upright wolf-like creatures? Yes. Well, for one thing, um, they can easily, according to witness reports, they can just as easily go on all fours as they can on two legs. And oftentimes, witnesses will see them running along on two legs, and they'll look around and realize they're being observed, and then they'll drop down to all fours, and also vice versa. People will see them running on all fours or doing something on all fours, and then they'll um, stand up and run away on two legs. I suppose it's a matter of, of their personal preference. But 
They do seem elusive. They don't seem to want to get their picture taken on cameras. And I have no explanation for that um, other than it seems that other cryptids like Bigfoot, um, you know, the term, you probably heard the term blob squatch instead of sasquatch, which refers to the, the fact that almost any photograph that's ever been taken of what people purport to be a Bigfoot or a sasquatch is mostly blurry. You know, it's not good enough to stand as proof positive of these creatures. And um, the upright canines are good at this. The Bigfoot are good at this. Um, almost any of these creatures seem to have an elusive quality, um, a seeming ability to follow up electrical equipment or at least to sense it and stay off of it. And I don't know why this should be. I often give the comparison that um, a bear is a good example of an animal that um, is generally thought of as being elusive. You know, guidebooks will say if a bear is around and doesn't want you to see it, you're not going to see it. And yet, um, we have them kind of encroaching into southern Wisconsin, and if a bear shows up in the backyard of somebody in Madison, Wisconsin, you can bet that at least three of the news TV channels will have reporters over there taking photos of it, and the bear won't mind. The bear will be up in a tree. The bear will um, perfectly, you know, doesn't do anything to, you know, turn the the uh, photos into uh, gray masses of, of uh, static noise, whatever. It, it's there on, on the TV for you to look at. This never happens with the cryptids, mm. and that is um, a major mystery in my view. Well, we have a suggestion about why that occurs. Um, now, it was I think it was years ago when you were on. I, I'm sorry to say it's it's going to be more frequent <laughs> from now on. Sure. But uh, we brought up the idea. See, our particular point of view. And I get into this in the late 1970s. I couldn't figure out why there were certain characteristics to paranormal phenomena that I was seeing and the people around me were seeing. Uh, and it just the old explanations, you know, spirits of the dead, you know, whatever didn't just didn't do it. It just they weren't good enough. So uh, I got into quantum physics and uh, the idea of brains, b r a n e s, like as in membranes, right. has developed over the past thirty or forty years, and uh, that's that's sort of the, the sort of parallel reality thing, and the idea that all things are possible somewhere or somewhere, and all you need is an intersect. Right. With the right kind of energy, which seems to be uh, really, uh, the, you've got electromagnetic boundaries between these things. These brains uh, mm -hmm. seem to be made of electromagnetic energy, and when that happens, plasma can develop, which is just electrified air molecules. And that, I think, explained a lot of the stuff in the photography that we saw. And if you've got something uh, w with a bit of a brain between you and it, it's going to be blurry. And... Right. Uh, that that may be an oversimplification, but I think that that's that's uh, part of at least part of the explanation. We'll get into that after the break. We're going to take our break now. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley, and a chilly one at that. We'll be right back with our wonderful guest Linda Godfrey, an American monster. So stay with us. Hi, I'm Greg Bell, the host of Win Radio Was. I'm Mortimer. Bill. Is that you under that blindfold? Bill. With this thing on, I can't see who I am. No, I imagine not. Can't you see anything at all under that blindfold? On a clear day, I can see the blindfold. You can. Yeah. Win Radio Was. Shows from the past for today's imaginations. Win Radio Was airs Monday through Friday right here on ON 1240 Radio at 11 a.m. and 11 p.m. 
sounded kind of like an upright canine behind that blindfold. But in any case, I wanted to remind you of several of the charities Ben and I have adopted on the show. And you can see the full details, uh, or the links anyway, at BehindTheParanormal.com, our show website. And I'll just remind you of a few locally here. We have Builders Helping Heroes, uh, an uh, organization, a subsidiary, nonprofit of the Rhode Island Builders Association, which helps uh, veterans and their families, uh, war veterans who have lost... Uh, um, families who have lost loved ones and, and war veterans who have been severely uh, wounded in combat and uh, we've got uh, construction and remodeling going on to them at no charge wonderful, wonderful group also uh, usacares.org doing wonderful things financially for veterans and their families also uh, to our north Canadian Veterans Advocacy uh, .org. That's uh, Mike Blaze in Ontario doing great things up there for the folks uh, who have served in the war on terror from Canada. Uh, also, a uh, non-veterans charity out in Los Angeles, Youth Mentoring Connection uh, out in Los Angeles. Tony LaRay out there doing wonderful things for at-risk youth using indigenous wisdom. And again, not, nothing occult about it, uh, just good common sense from our remote ancestors and uh, bringing uh, honor and pride to people who are otherwise at risk in society there. And that's youthmentoring.org. So check that out. So let's get back to our conversation with Linda Godfrey. And uh, we're, we're talking about American Monsters, her book, American Monsters, A History of Monster Lore, Legends and Sightings in America, Linda S. Godfrey. And uh, the, the idea of where these things, Linda, come from and go after you see them, and a sort of lack of physical evidence, again, uh, sort of lends credence, in, in our opinion anyway, to uh, what we said before the break, and that's that these things can be sort of drop-ins mm-hmm. from uh, in, in parallel world intersects, which are the normal state of the planet, in our opinion. These things take... It's, I suppose the multiverse of reality, however you want to define that, being like Swiss cheese. Um, there are mm-hmm. electromagnetic reasons for this and a sort of balance that elegantly spreads throughout this whole kind of creation. But, I mean, what say you? I mean, is that, has that entered uh, any uh, the realm of possibility for you? Oh, yeah. I try to keep a very open mind. Um, I think it's a lot more likely than, than people in this, in this world changing physically into werewolves. Definitely. And the interesting thing is that, again, this was something that I started looking at very early on because I've always tried to talk to um, our Native American um, people who have um, their own views on this. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the ones that I've talked to, and I've I've talked to elders in different tribes and uh, one elder that was an anthropologist who was very interested in these things, and one idea that I've heard many times is that they'll say, well, the Bigfoot and the Dogman are both actually basically spirit creatures, and mm-hmm. they come from the spirit world, they know where the doors are, and when they're here, they're fully physical, they need energy, they need to eat, they can leave footprints, you know, they interact, but when they want to go back to their own world, they know where those doors are. And they can just go back. And that's why you can't find them. That's why you don't find dead bodies. And it also, to me, would explain if something is coming from uh, maybe, say, a, a parallel world or an adjacent world where it's sort of similar to ours in, in that we can both recognize animal forms from it. But if it's out of our view, out of our sight, Perhaps that's because maybe the, their whole world is 
is based on um, uh, is based a few steps up the electromagnetic field ladder. Who knows? And yeah. so perhaps they're at um, a slightly different literal vibration than we are. And in fact, I actually just tweeted this to somebody. I was having a conversation with it a little uh, about an hour ago that our trail cams are not built to their specifications. They're meant to capture things that are physically solid in our own realm and from our own Mm -hmm. realm. But when you put something there that is a few notches up or a few notches down, it doesn't register correctly on our equipment. Uh, well, well, that that makes sense, as particularly given the uh, the opinion of of some <clears throat> physicists that that these worlds, uh, parallel worlds, have uh, may may have very very different laws of physics, mm-hmm. one to the other. Uh, some may be very similar, right. some may be very different, and and that sort of lends credence, I think, to that particular point of view. I mean, I can't think of any better explanation for most of these things. Uh, but then, leading right on from that, Linda, uh, that leads into another thing. We operating on that theory w- with all paranormal phenomena that we investigate, and uh, we, we're not cryptozoologists. We, it's mostly some ghost research and and and, and UFOs at mm-hmm. this point. Although uh, you know, uh, you run into many different kinds of phenomena phenomena in the same area. Yes. And I was going to ask uh, th- you that in your research into the the cryptids or the monsters, whatever, whatever you want to call them, uncategorized uh, creatures who are very elusive, do you run into uh, UFOs, ghost phenomena, poltergeists, such as in the Mothman? cases in the in the Ohio Valley in the 1960s and John Keel who was a journalist like like you and, and I uh, identified certain uh, possibilities for considerations right. such as we're talking about now um, do right. you do you find uh, do you find that in cases that come your way I do yeah um, John Keel called these windows window areas sure it's yep. as if somebody in this other world left the window open and then all this uh, weird stuff got out. <laughs> Effectively, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and then we see it. Yeah, I drew my own little illustration of that idea in the the um, opening part of, of American Monsters. Indeed, you do. That's why I asked the question. Yeah, and so um, I do. I do see this from um, time and time again. And UFOs or strange lights of one kind or another are probably the most common other phenomena, but. Um, it's very likely that where you find Dogman, not too far away, you may also find Bigfoot. Um, I identified in one of my earlier books what I call the Jefferson County Square of Weirdness, and it's it's the county just north of Walworth County in Wisconsin, which is my own. And I happen to just, I, w- I like to map things out because it shows me um, concentrations of things and, and, and where to focus on certain things and yeah, we do Where, too. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great tool, and I realized I was mapping out all these things that were in southeastern Wisconsin, and I realized that this county, you know, right at the center of it, um, is the site of one of the earliest sightings of one of these uh, creatures. It's known as the Gadara creature because it was digging, seen digging by a night watchman in 1936 in a burial mound, and it stood up and kind of growl spoke what. He thought sounded like the word Gadara, which, if you look it up in the Bible, is the area where Jesus cast the demons out of the swine and told them to go into the sea Yeah, in this region of, of uh, Gadara. So that's in the center. Um, you have, it's also the, the 
longtime home of Rosemary Kennedy, the sister of JFK, who was uh, lobotomized by her father. But in that same county, you also have ancient Aztalan, which is a very old, uh, the remains of a very old Mississippian fort-style town where there are burials of uh, possible that show possible cannibalization. There's a so-called princess burial of a hunched-back woman who is thought to be an elite ruler buried with what would be considered today a fortune in trading beads and shells um, and mounds where people to this day will go and say if they sit on those mounds, it's now a, a state park, um, they'll see visions. Uh, one woman I know who's a professor and plays the flute was sitting on one of these mounds playing a, a simple uh, type of pan flute and she and her husband both suddenly saw um, people dressed in uh, very old deerskin clothing, um, doing things, going about, and sort of a phantom type of uh, view of these people. So On phantom that, world, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and there's right nearby that is Rock Lake, where there are pyramidal stone structures on the, the bottom of this lake. That's been featured on TV, and that's supposed to be home of uh, a lake monster called Rocky. Um, there's another, there's a ghost road that, where people have seen giant birds, not just ghosts. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Oh, yeah. Sightings, yeah. Uh, you name them. Oh, we, we live right near the Bridgewater Triangle in Massachusetts, so mm. it's, uh, you know, you, you name it, and it's there, and we've right. been working in Central Connecticut. So, so, so we're working on it. It's too bad you don't live closer. We could hang out and do some cases. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I would love that. But uh, in any case, um, we uh, I think we have a question from a listener. But, um, okay, we have uh, Bob from, I believe, Bob is from Cumberland? Okay, let's get Bob on the line here. Uh, hello, Bob. You are on W what No, he's not. No, he's no. not. Okay. Well, well, we'll get Bob here. But but in any case, uh, Linda, yeah, uh, the, uh, the issue of physical evidence is always brought up, and the question is what mm-hmm. constitutes evidence. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that when we get, when we get Bob now, all right? Okay, yeah, Bob. Oh, hello, Bob. Are you with us? Welcome yes, to I'm the here. show. Yes, you have, a question, you have a question for Linda Godfrey. Yes, Linda. Uh, you must be familiar with uh, the Skinwalker Ranch in Utah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, boy, I'll tell you, I, I've uh, picked up for the second time. I read this book, Hunt for the Skinwalker, a right. scientific um, uh, investigation of what uh, went on at Skinwalker Ranch. Are you mm-hmm. familiar with that book, Hunt Very for much Skinwalker? So. Very much so. Yep. Yeah, I uh, me too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you have. Okay. Mm-hmm. Boy, it was one of a bucket full of odd occurrences. If you ever want to talk about that subject, huh? Well, we right. have, actually, yeah, but go ahead, Linda, you can see your question. Go I'll let well, her answer, I'll get off. You know, it, it, one, one thing about the Skinwalker Ranch is it, it uh, has introduced the idea of those portals that you were just talking about or sure. entrances into other worlds. Um, I think it was one of the first books to really bring out a lot of public awareness on, on that because um, they would see these openings in the sky and inside they could see this creature, you know, something, something unexplainable. Exactly. And, yeah. Yeah, and thank you for the call, Bob. By the way, yeah, we, uh, we oddly enough, we we cannot get near that case. Uh, we can't get anybody on the show from from there, and we, of course, it's a little too far for us to, to pretty much go. But I, I don't know if that's just oversight on their part or whatever. I don't know. I'm trying to get George Knapp uh, to come on to talk about it. But in any case, any case, uh, it is a very interesting case uh, given that situation. Now, speaking of books. And that is an excellent one, Hunt for the Skin World. Let's take a minute before we finish burning up the hour here, Lynn, and talk about your books and your website. Mm-hmm. Go. 
Well, my website is lindagodfrey.com. It's a, it's a WordPress. You'll find my, my blog there, and you can get an example. I, I don't write up every single thing I do on there, but you can see some good examples of the kinds of things that I busy myself with. And there's a real interesting case that happened in Heartland, Wisconsin. I called it the, the Heartland Harry thing that you can look up. And you'll find all kinds of, of things there. I've got some research that I did on some of these um, giant Native American skulls and skeletons that happened to have been in my own backyard. Uh, not literally, but, but I'm very close to where I live. So I've been researching those for like 10 years. Um, that kind of thing. And then I've also got a page that has my books and biographical information. There's another one um, that has my uh, first fantasy fiction book that, that's out, um, which is a little different, and it is not about werewolves. <laughs> nothing, <laughs> nothing like that. You can read all about it. It's called God Johnson, The Unforgiven Diary. And uh, on the books and bio page, you can find links to all of the books. Very good. Excellent. And I must say, uh, and this is coming from a professional editor, uh, your books are very well written, and it's refreshing to see that uh, with some of the rubbish that's out there that I wouldn't use as doorstops. But your book is oh. is uh, outstanding, and re- really we appreciate that, that there's someone like you out there running, uh, writing about this, uh, this very difficult subject. We have trouble finding guests on this subject, as a matter of fact. So uh, you can expect some more invitations. Uh, now, well, we talked a little bit about physical evidence, Linda, and the idea that... Um, uh, we were, you know, things are coming and going in perhaps very, very odd and physically strange ways and this sort of thing. But nevertheless, uh, there ought to be something, and there is. Now, I know that, that my one foray into uh, cryptozoology was in 1989 when I was sent by a magazine to England to uh, research the uh, B- Beast of Exmoor, as it oh, was called. Oh, cool. Wow. Yeah. I'm jealous. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, well, there's a long story behind it. And I said, this isn't really not my field, but boy, I learned quickly. Uh, and now, in my opinion, I think it was just, uh, you know, you've got some sort of um, species of cougar on, in, in, on the, the, the moors there, and that's not, they weren't native to Britain at the time, and they aren't now, and I could just see some yeah. colonel from the Raj just releasing the thing when Parliament passed the Animals Act in <laughs> 1976. But in any case, uh, there were, it was very odd, there was a, a very lo- long strand of hair that was found uh, black, and uh, several witnesses I talked to saw had seen two of the creatures at the same time, and this was very interesting. And then no sooner I got back here to New England, then, then we had the what they referred to as the Mansfield Mystery Cat. Mm-hmm. So within a year, I got a call from the um, Massachusetts Environmental Police saying the people have been seeing this one. And... Uh, the fire chief out there in Mansfield, Mass., was laughing at this until he saw the thing right across from his own house one morning. And it was a very large cat, and the, I believe the strand of hair was tested and came back as related to a domestic cat, only really, really long. And so, uh, you know, you have all these odd things. So, so as far as physical evidence is concerned, how much is there for, say, the... the, the uh, lycanthropy type things, you know, the upright canines, things of this this sort? Well, the best thing that we have for those is their footprints because mm-hmm. um, they do show up as very large canine type prints with claws, you know, which tells us that they're not cats because cats walk with their um, claws sheathed usually. And they're normally um, four and a half to six inches wide which is is really really big and sometimes you can even see 
another mark that sort of looks like a heel print, but it's where the, the hock touches the ground if it's preparing to spring or something. You know how it'll sort of, a, a creature on its hind legs will rear back a little mm. before it springs. And so um, I've got a, a number of the footprint photos, um, have found many of them myself. That is probably the best physical evidence. And again, evidence is not the same thing as proof. You know, you, can, you right. have to pile and pile up evidence until you um, find the smoking gun that, that totally proves it. So that's a little bit of a different thing. Um, and then you do have hair, too. The trouble, the trouble with um, the hair thing is, since uh, now with the dog man, they appear to be totally canine. So I think that if somebody did have a hair that would test out, um, you know, how is a hair sample going to show that they have elongated paws, the main difference between them and, and others, or that it walks upright when it wants to? If everything else is still the same, I think it's just going to show up as some type of wolf or wolf-dog hybrid. Um, I think it, it should be a little better for Bigfoot or Sasquatch because, um, you know, a giant unknown primate is not something, uh, is not a usual animal that, that we have here in North America. However, there's no benchmark firmly established um, DNA or hair structure, hair follicle structure or hair, um, there's another word I'm reaching for, well, just the structure of the hair. A lot of things can be identified by that. Morphology, the hair morphology is what mm-hmm. I no, um, there's no baseline comparison for that either. So um, you just have to say, well, uh, it could be an unidentified primate, but who's to say that's a Bigfoot, you know? Sure. So the very fact that they're mysterious is, hampers us from confirming anything using these scientific tests. Well, now, now you've had several encounters of your own. Can you tell us about one or two of those? Well, um, I think that I may have seen part of a dog man. Okay. Um, when I was, uh, and I opened up my, my book, um, The Michigan Dog Man, Werewolves and Other Unknown Canines, um, with this anecdote, which is I was in the field with a History Channel cameraman uh, working on some, on some uh, Monster Quest um, witnesses that, that we had gone there to visit, and we were staked out on this lonely, desolate road. It was like 3 a.m. because that was when the witnesses who were with us had seen at different times um, a seven, what they described as a seven-foot-tall, grayish, um, dog-like creature that ran upright and a slightly smaller, dark brown one. So we have a spotlight trained in this one area. We're seeing green eyes shining at us from the bushes. We're hearing things running around, hearing things like some some giant dog shaking its fur coat out. And all of a sudden, I happened to turn, and right at the edge of the spotlight, something just hit that light so that you could see the fur on its back illuminated for a moment. That fur, though you couldn't see any of the rest of the animal, but it was in deep shadow, was gray, and it was vertical. Whatever it was was running upright. And the other thing that I saw was that it momentarily blotted out a reflective road sign and when we measured that road sign, it would have had to have been seven feet tall to do that. And one of the witnesses also saw it at the same time I did. Unfortunately, the cameraman was turned the other way, as usually <laughs> happens. Yeah. That's probably why it po- you know, yep. picked that moment to run. That's true. Um, the, the witnesses just got 
crazy scared and insisted on leaving immediately, you know, because they'd had better looks at it than that. Yeah, wow. So that's probably my only look at a, a, a dog man, but... Well, I've talked to Stanton Friedman. He says he's never seen a UFO. So. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, ben has a question about his uh, one of his heroes. One of my heroes? No, I just I, I when I first opened the book, the thing that caught my eye the most was Bat Squatch, mm-hmm. and I considered to myself before reading further, what is the Bat Squatch? So could you briefly describe what the Bat Squatch is? Yeah, the Bat Squatch of Tacoma, um, and these things have been around a little bit longer, I'm sure, but it was dubbed Bat Squatch by a young man um, in 1994 in Tacoma, Washington, and I interviewed the uh, newspaper reporter um, from the Tacoma, Washington News Tribute who knew this uh, teenage young man who had the, the first known sighting of this creature, um, to, to describe the creature, it looks like some kind of a furry wolf-like thing with huge bat-like wings that are usually described as 15 to 20 feet wide or more. And this person was driving along. His car stopped. Talk about electromagnetic fields. His pickup truck's engine suddenly failed, and only 30 feet down the road, he saw a huge and horrific being descending out of the dark sky, Wamps up this big cloud of dust and stands there and staring at the teenage driver. And he's just sitting there feeling really weird, sort of scared, doesn't know exactly what to do. And then it, um, and it had yellow eye shine, fang, uh, no fangs, but white teeth. The face was like that of a wolf covered with fur, weirdly blue fur. And finally it unfolded its wings and flapped off. Now, the weird thing is, um, you know, you think, well, you know, this is over in the western Pacific. There could be all kinds of big creatures by the oceans. You've got the Bigfoot. But this same thing has been seen over um, in the East Coast. Some of the Mothman descriptions sounded like uh, bat squatch. And then you have more sightings of them around Pennsylvania and Ohio, even over downtown Chicago. I've investigated one myself in Wisconsin. I called it the Wisconsin Man Bat. So, um, what are they? You know, it's hard hard to say. One common denominator is that they do seem to be able to just vertically zoom away with this horrible shriek. And in the case of the Wisconsin men that saw it, they both became physically ill. Uh, they pulled a truck over. The younger one threw up. Um, the older man was sick for a couple of weeks. Interesting. So, yeah, it's, it, I do believe it's probably the best name ever invented for any cryptid. Yes, indeed. Uh, you mentioned several cases, Linda, in, in our last few minutes here in the, in New England. Uh, one of which is struck my fancy. Uh, it was the uh, Frog Men or Frog People of Fairfield County, Connecticut. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it, you know that one's just just kind of a, a weird one. Usually. I've determined um, that frog people are mostly going to be urban legends. Well, um, these could be New York commuters in this case. That's right yeah, down in yeah. New York City. Yeah, yeah, they could be. And I'm trying to. I've got two different two different reports of of like frog people, and I'm trying to remember which one. These weren't the frog. 
the frog-faced um, aliens are not. This, I'm sorry, I've got some on the west coast and some on the east. No, coast. I know you, you do tend to you tend to get uh, they do tend to get jumbled in your in your mind. But I'm the, thinking this was sort of a clan that was um, supposed to be living out amongst themselves and. They just have this weird froggy look about them. Is that the one that I'm thinking of, or that you're thinking about? Oh, yeah, okay. uh, yes, pretty much. And uh, but but it, it, I remember it was in the period uh, during the 70s when they were the, the Loveland Frog Man of Ohio was reported, and right. they seemed to be a. Uh, uh, sort of an outbreak of amphibious cryptids, if you want to say, during that period, and I find that interesting as well. Uh, mm-hmm. The um, I believe it was the, uh, the the Dover Demon right near here uh, what was reported at that time as well, and uh, Lauren Coleman, uh, the great cryptozoologist, investigated that. So there seems to be always something going on. Um, yeah, the Connecticut frog folk here, amphibious humanoids, tend to stand out in the crowd. Um, love the way this is written. Uh, the frog people of Fairfield County, Connecticut, prefer to leave their secluded country compound only at night. Okay, frog, yeah, the 1970s, uh, weird U.S., yep, and, and so that, that's on page 269 of, of your book, uh, American Monster. Right. Very interesting stuff. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. and I do compare them, uh, I compare them to things like pig people, which, you know, I've got three different legends of pig people around Wisconsin, and every single one of them I can pretty much rule out as urban legend. You know, and, and these things do spring up, too, and, and that's a different sort of thing. Another type of urban legend would be the weird things that lumberjacks make up in their camp, campfire tales, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, that's another reason to really dig into these things and try and differentiate among them. Well, exactly. Uh, and probably, maybe you have time, what do we have time, Ben, for? Just maybe uh, one not much time. Quick question about the Wendigo. We have two minutes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't. No, I guess we we're done. We don't right. have a lot of time. Okay. Well, Linda, it's, it's a, it was a great pleasure to have you. Wonderful conversation. And uh, let's stay in touch, and we'll have you back soon. I would love to, anytime. And, and, and thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. Let's give your website one more time. It's just lindagodfrey, G-O-D-F-R-E-Y, dot com. Outstanding. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You guys have a great new year. You too. You too. Bye. All right, let's do our announcements. Indeed. So you can visit our show website at BehindTheParanormal.com where you can find nearly 600 free podcasts from both ON1240 and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio along with special shows and podcasts. And I've written a couple of books myself. You can find those at Amazon.com, Amazon Kindle, Barnes & Noble Nook. Uh, includes uh, Faces at the Window, Footsteps in the Attic, Turning Home, God, Ghosts, and Human Destiny. And if you're into Rhode Island history, another hat of mine, Rhode Island, a genial history, written with my good friend Glenn Laxton, formerly of Channel 12, a wonderful historian as well. Uh, I hope I am, too. But anyway, if you buy them directly at BehindTheParanormal.com, I will be happy to sign them for you. You'll help us keep all those podcasts free. And check again those charities we mentioned on the uh, uh, earlier part of the show. Indeed. So next Monday, January 12th, here on uh, ON1240 and ONWorldwide.com, we will welcome British researcher Derek Savory. It'll be a Savory show where we talk about the paranormal flap areas he has researched in the UK. We leave you this evening with a practical quote from American author Maria Robinson. Nobody can go back and start a, a new beginning, but anyone can start today and make a new ending. I'm Paul Eno, and we hope you enjoyed our show this evening on cryptids, monsters, or whatever you want to call them. Whether it be sea serpents, dragons, bat squatches, regular squatches, or all variety of squatches thereof. And we're very interested in your reports 
uh, of anything strange that happens. Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com or Bennett at BehindTheParanormal.com, whether it be cryptids or ghosts or anything else you may uh, have to happen to run into, uh, we cannot guarantee that we will be able to do anything. But we can at least advise you. We could advise you, and uh, emails do, however, pile up, and that's why we're having more open-line shows. Okay, very good. So again, I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.